Hello, and welcome to the Robot Brains podcast. I am Peter Abiel, your guide, as we sit down with the leading minds teaching robots to think and bringing AI robotics into the real world. Before introducing this week's guest, I want to say I was overwhelmed to see that listeners tuned in from all over the world for our first episode. I'd also like to thank all the people that listened to our first episode, subscribed to the show, and rated us so highly. Some of the more keen-eyed among you have also noticed that on our website, therobotbrains.ai, there are Easter eggs with clues about the identities of some of our future guests. We'll be updating the website regularly as we schedule new interviews. I hope you'll have fun trying to figure out who these new guests will be. Feel free to email any questions or ideas for new episodes or other things to podcast at therobotbrains.ai or share your thoughts with us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Now, last week, Andre Karpathy, the AI director at Tesla, talked to me about how AI can learn to steer a car by training neural networks by using vast amounts of data. This week, we will dive deeper into the first step of that process, the data, which is such a crucial part of the system. And in fact, this is relevant well beyond self-driving. For pretty much any AI system, a lot of serious issues can arise if we are not careful about the data. As we learn today, our human biases, well, really societal biases, are reflected in data, which can in turn affect the AI we build and significant research is needed to address this. To discuss these topics, I couldn't have been happier to get to sit down with Princeton professor Olga Rusikovsky. We had a really interesting conversation touching on lots of topics that are so important for us to address. I hope you enjoy it. Olga, it's really great to have you. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're very excited too. So one of the things, well, one of the main things you're famous for is the fact that the data on which AI is trained can really affect the outcome, the decisions the AI is making, and that there can be can be bias in the data. What does that even mean for it to be bias in the data and in AI systems as a consequence? What's the issue here that's at stake? There's always bias in the data, right? So what's at stake is the following. We're building these systems that are, in theory, we sort of say, you know, this is an automated system. It's making automated decisions about the world. And that, in some ways, implies that this system is impartial. This is kind of a almost an underlying assumption, okay, the system is, is fully automated, it's making fully automated decisions. But of course, in practice, the system is actually learning patterns from data that we have provided, which means that if the data has a particular distribution, so for example, if you know in the, in the computer vision world, right, so supposing we are trying to train a model for recognizing computer monitors. And it turns out that in the data, in the photographs of computer monitors, they primarily co-occur with men and not with women. And so the model may learn that, okay, one way to recognize what a computer monitor looks like is it actually starts looking for, okay, is there a man in the photo? And if so, then, you know, the probability that there's a computer monitor here would increase. And so kind of as a result of this kind of pattern in the data, it's learning to make decisions based on features that maybe would be undesirable. Like this is both sort of counter to 
accuracy of the system. This means that, you know, if, if this is the kind of pattern that it learns, and this is sort of picking up on kind of spurious correlations in the data rather than focusing on the task at hand. And so this harms accuracy of the system. And so computer vision is a space where there is frequently a correct answer to the question. So if I ask you, you know, is there a monitor in the image? There is an answer like, yes, there is a monitor, no, there isn't. But there's a lot of places where AI uh, sort of automated decision making is being applied. So this is, for example, within the criminal justice system, within sort of decisions about who to give loans to and things like that. And in those settings, there's no ground truth answer. You're sort of predicting risk. You're predicting, you know, what kind of decision should you make? And they're even more so it's sort of, first of all, harder to recognize what kind of biases or sort of patterns may be hiding in the historical data. So, so for example, for loan prediction, you are training a model to automate prediction that's based on the data that you're feeding it, which tends to be past historical data of sort of who has gotten loans. And so if that past historical data has a particular type of, for example, gender or racial bias, which surprise it does, but as soon as that bias is in the data, what's going to happen is that the automatic system, which is basically trained to replicate the past decision-making, is going to then incorporate those factors into its decision-making. And this has, first of all, this now becomes propagated on a much larger scale because these systems are deployed at massive scale and, and now are making all of these decisions where, you know, one person might make biased decisions, but they're making a relatively small number of decisions, whereas the system can be deployed everywhere. The second thing is, as I've kind of already mentioned, we think of these systems as impartial, and that's just fundamentally not true. And so that's sort of the second negative and the, the second danger. I would say that on the positive side, it's very difficult to get people to make impartial decisions. It's very difficult to sort of get folks to not be swayed or biased by gender, by race, by all kinds of social constructs. But with AI systems, what's really great about the sort of research space is that we can actually do things that make it better. And it's in some ways easier because as soon as we kind of identify a particular bias that the model is exhibiting, okay, we can go back and we can, you know, try to adjust the data. We can get creative with how we adjust the algorithm. We can really rethink the, the design and would have meaningful kind of immediate impact. And the impacts, you know, first of all, become deployed on a very large scale and make things better on a large scale. And second of all, we don't run against sort of issues of people saying, what are you talking about? I'm not racist. Like, why are you accusing me of it. Like the AI systems don't have that kind of reaction. They just get better if we put in the, the effort to make them better. Right. So I feel like there is um, somewhat of a, a big distinction between some of the problems that you mentioned. So there is computer vision. On the other hand, there is criminal justice data sets and loans. And computer vision feels like if your data isn't great, if you can identify that, and that's a big if probably, I mean, your, your work helps make that happen. But if there is a way to identify it, you can in principle go snap more pictures. But in criminal justice, I mean, obviously you can't just make some arbitrary new decisions to uh, complement your existing data. That doesn't work. So I'm really curious what can be done if everything comes from the data, but you can't just generate new data because you can't just incarcerate somebody because you need an extra data point. That'd be, well, that'd be a crime in itself, obviously. So what are the things that are available to still do something when you cannot just 
collect more data. I'll try to keep this brief, but I have so many things to say on this. So on the computer vision side, I think, you know, in some cases you can go out and snap our photos, but in other cases, actually, it's very difficult. So for example, we're like talking about geographic bias in visual data sets right now that a lot of the photos, they come from the web. We tend to sort of download images from the internet, which means that they come from particular countries, from particular regions. And so this question of like, geographic bias of how do we make a data set that's more geographically inclusive is very much sort of at the forefront of research right now. And there's like no easy answers to that of like, we have to basically rethink the entire data collection to do that. And what's an example of a bad effect of geographic bias in the data sets? So it's been shown in a paper a couple of years ago that the current object detectors that are sort of in theory, you know, generic object detectors fail to recognize, for example, soap, like bar soap, that's not commonly used in the U.S. So the, the soap detector ends up being a detector for U.S. brands of liquid soap. And when you show it, you know, photos from other countries where you know, the majority of the world uses bar soap, it just doesn't recognize it, it hasn't seen those photos. So that's one example, but there's many, many others of like different household objects of different scenes of people, certainly that, that come as a result of these kinds of geographic biases and imbalances in the data set. And so going back to the other kind of data where it's completely impossible typically to just fabricate more data that's real data, what are some ideas that still can maybe work? Yeah. So first of all, there's definitely things you can do on the algorithm side. So, you know, the data is sometimes it it is what it is. And and even if you can get more data, sometimes, you know, it comes from a particular distribution that like represents the world and you can't invent more data if there isn't sort of enough of a particular type of data. So one of the things you can do is basically on the algorithm side, you can try to impose particular constraints in uh, learning the model that sort of, for example, says things like, I value different errors differently. So I'm trying to train a model to achieve high accuracy on this data set, but I really will, you know, sort of impose a very high cost on making a, you know, one type of error and a low cost of making another type of error. So the example I commonly give there is with autonomous driving data sets, right? So you have instead of a car driving the world, you will see very, very few examples of accidents. And that's good. And that's, you know, you could try to sort of simulate more, but in practice, you know, it's a very long tail distribution. It's a lot of sort of normal driving scenarios, but you can still learn from this data and you could tell the model, okay, there's a very, 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 very high negative penalty for doing the wrong thing and like causing an accident. Whereas there's a much smaller penalty for if you sort of, you know, stop the car when when it's not a dangerous situation. And so in that way, you're kind of imposing particular, I want to use the word values, but kind of particular things that you care about, you can tell the model that at the algorithm level, even if your data has sort of imbalances or biases in it. So if we can kind of go one step deeper here, I saw you recently published a paper with a method called Revise. I think that ties into everything we've just been discussing. Can you say a little bit about the ideas behind that work? Yeah, so Revise was a, a paper. So it's the lead author is my PhD student, Angelina Wang. And the other co-author is my colleague, Professor Arvind Narayanan. And this is work is a tool that essentially strives to uh, reveal biases in visual data sets. And so what we look at is we take as an input and image data sets as sort of a collection of images and, and whatever the associated labels are that have been collected on the data and try to output sort of patterns from the data. So what do we discover? And kind of at the simplest end is things like 
oh, you know, this data set has a lot of pictures of cars, but not enough pictures of people. And that's kind of those sort of the simplest is just like numbers of different concepts. You can go deeper, for example, looking at, you know, what things co-occur together. You can look at things like, you know, maybe coming back to the like monitor or computer example and like people of different genders, you could say, okay, you know, maybe a computer co-occurs with people who identify as female versus people who identify as male, they co-occur in the same frequencies, but maybe the one of the genders actually occurs sort of closer to the computer and the other one occurs further in the photo, which suggests that maybe, you know, some people are more likely to be interacting with this object as opposed to others. The revises is a tool that tries to kind of bring to light some of these patterns in visual data and then hopefully inspire the downstream interventions. So either when you're building an algorithm from this data, you can sort of say, okay, I know there's these patterns in the data, but I would like my algorithm to not focus on those patterns. I would like the algorithm to be insensitive to those patterns. Or you can say, okay, these patterns are a little weird. Let me just go collect more images. If, if that's an option that's available, let me collect more images of maybe don't have these particular um, patterns that you think are harmful or unnecessary for your downstream application. It's really cool. And so is it fair to say that if, let's say, I would want to build a computer vision AI system and I just I have a data set that I, I plan to use, I can actually pass that data set through Revise and it could expose to me issues with the data and then encourage me to improve my data set or change the way I train on the data set to resolve some of these issues? Yep, that's what it's intended to do. And we're still working and, and, you know, making it more and more general. And we've tested, I think, four or five data sets by now, but are definitely very actively working with actually a, a large team of students now trying to make it more general as well. So it seems like something pretty much everybody should be encouraged to use then. Correct. Gonna, <laughs> yeah. That's the hope. I'm sure it'll happen. So now one thing is bias in data and AI systems making large-scale decisions. But just another thing that in some sense a form of bias, I would say is if I look at, let's say, the history of deep learning and I see who is being highlighted, there are iconic figures like Jeff Hinton, Jan LeCun, Yosha Benjo, who keep recurring over and over and of course did many amazing things, but there's also something that stands out about them. They're white males, not exactly maybe as representative of the world as it could be. I know you've been actually done a lot of thinking about that. And can you say a little bit more about that? And what are some of the issues there and, and how can we address them? Yeah, so thanks so much for, for asking that question. So we've, you know, so far been talking about bias rate in, in data, bias in models, but there is a much richer history of sort of structural bias kind of leading into the design of these systems. And, and here, you know, you can think about things like what are the applications that we're trying to solve right now with AI? Like where is the effort going? What are the kinds of questions we're asking? You know, even on the data side, like who defines the type of visual concepts that we are working to recognize? And all of these come down to the question, right, of like who are the researchers and are the researchers representative of the population at large. We like to say that, you know, AI will affect everybody and we're building it for the betterment of humanity. But of course, there's sort of the caveat that if the researchers are not representative of the world at large, then chances are, you know, we're going to bring our own biases to the table. We are going to work on problems that we think are important. We're going to come up with solutions that we think are the right solutions. And if the people at the table are not a diverse group, then inevitably the kind of solutions, the kind of outcomes that result from this are going to affect and benefit people who look like us and who come from similar backgrounds, who, who have sort of similar needs to us. And so this is 
why I think, you know, for the health of this field to make sure that we actually do all the good with AI that we think we can do or that we hope to do, we really need diverse voices at the table. We need people coming from different backgrounds. We need people who read different books as kids. We need people who have different opinions about the world. We need people with sort of different perspectives, with different family structures, with different viewpoints coming together and actually, you know, taking on leadership roles within the space. This really resonates. And I really like what you highlight there is that researchers actually choose what problems to work on. It's not that there's this list of things that we all try to resolve. And that's like a ground truth list. We actually, in some sense, make up problems we research, right? And so I'm curious if you have any examples of research problems that you think have been missed and now are starting to get more attention as we get more diverse representation in our community. We're now nowhere where we need to be, but as it's slowly, it's maybe getting a little bit better. What are some signs there of, of interesting new problems that we're seeing cracked at? Yeah, well, I mean, I can give the kind of the canonical example, which is the sort of the seminal work by Joy Bolamwini and Tim Gebru on face recognition. And so they, in 2018, published a paper that says that face recognition is less accurate on people with darker skin and on women. And they ran an analysis of commercial face recognition software and did like a very in-depth study that shows that this is a consistent pattern. And, you know, you could say anybody could have done this study and, you know, there's some truth to that. But in practice, the people who did the study were two Black women where this has been their experience consistently with AI technologies that this technology did not work well on them. And so this is, you know, they were the ones who kind of conceived of this idea, like we should write a paper, we should expose this problem because this has been their experience. And it's not that the problem just appeared recently, it's been a while, it's just nobody has been asking this question. From a personal perspective as well, I remember the back when I was at Stanford, like, I mean, Peter and I were in the same lab, actually, briefly at uh, Stanford. I don't know if you remember when we were working on the Stanford AI robot back in the day, and there, there was a language recognition system that was sort of, you could talk to the robot, it would recognize you. That system did not recognize my voice. It recognized, I think, everybody else in the lab. Everybody else was male. Everybody else, you know, they had different levels of accents and the system still completely, essentially perfectly recognized them. And it just did not work on me. Like I would try to give a command to the robot and it just had no idea what I was saying. It would just crash and burn. And so, you know, now that I was a researcher on the team, I could sort of ask the question of like, well, hold on, hello, like what is happening here? Like, where's the system trained? And of course it turned out it was trained on male voices. There's a good chance that right now, you know, I think a lot of these things have come to light. I this may not be a surprise to the folks listening to this, that this kind of thing happened. But I think back in the day, you know, 10 years ago, whenever this was, I don't think this was as obvious. This was sort of us discovering this in the lab that like, oh, look, here's this pattern that's happening. When you encountered that, that it wasn't listening to you, did it change what you wanted to do research on? What was the effect? So I'll be honest, I think the unfortunate part is that I was like, oh, yeah, of course, like, I understand it's right. Like, I think I was back then I was kind of desensitized to these kinds of things. I think I've sort of experienced minor versions of that kind of throughout my career. And it was only much later that I actually started like speaking out against it and being much more like, no, 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 like, I got to change it. But I think back then I was just a starting PhD student. I was like, oh, that's okay. Like, don't worry about it. And I, I genuinely, I did not have a strong reaction. I think I've sort of gotten like built up a thick skin, which I think is, you know, now it makes me really sad to say that because I think if a 
first year student came to me and like she said she has this reaction, I would have been like, no, we got to change this. This is not okay. But I think it is actually, a, unfortunately, a fairly common reaction is you just kind of get used to these kinds of things. And you're just like, it's fine. Like I can't overreact. I, I should just sort of play along. I think all of these things over the years have kind of led me to this point now where I'm very passionate about the, the fairness research. I, I think we can and will do important things in that space, but it took me a while to get there. I do remember actually back then, I think you were also the o- only female researcher in the lab. That was normal. It was almost special that there was even a female researcher in the lab. It maybe it wasn't even normal to have one. I'm curious, like, how did you experience that? Is that also a thick skin thing and you just didn't even like pay attention to it? Or like, how did that play out? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I mean, so I did switch labs later on in my PhD career. So I graduated from a different lab, which, you know, was largely related to my research interests just shifting. And then sort of a new professor came to Stanford. So Fei-Fei Li came to Stanford when I was in my third year. And I always loved her work and was just really excited to go work in her lab. And so, so I ended up switching. I think looking back on it, I think in retrospect, I feel stronger about it than I did back then. I think back then I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of felt like special, but also I think in retrospect, it was isolating and kind of lonely, I think in ways that I hadn't realized until I joined the lab with more women. And it was like, oh, it's like possible to have, you know, you have different kinds of conversations, sort of I think different kinds of connections mm-hmm. when you're in a lab with people who are more like you. And then, I mean, gender, I think is part of it, but there's like so many different dimensions. Just, I was like, oh, I, I connect with people on like a different level in this lab. And that's kind of cool. At the time I hadn't realized that that's something that is important. Like I remember I had, I wasn't asking this question of like lab diversity when I was picking a PhD lab. It wasn't the thing that was on my mind and it wasn't something that I had realized, you know, until much later, how, how important that actually is. That's really Sad that that was a situation at the time, but it also sounds like it's something where a lot of people could be in the same situation as you were then in that they've never experienced anything else and mm-hmm. don't know there's something better out there. And I know you've been spreading a lot of efforts to increase the participation of any kind of backgrounds in, mm-hmm. in AI. And so I'm really curious about you know how, how you think about that and how we're going to be able to change that. A few years ago, I co-founded a foundation called AI for All. So this was together with my PhD advisor, Fei-Fei Lee, and then with Dr. Rick Summer, who is an expert in K-12 education, sort of he's a mathematician, but has spent his whole career on the education side of things. And so we uh, started this foundation to bring diversity into the leadership of AI. And we start pretty early. We're focusing on high school students. And we think about, you know, can we identify high school students who are have shown leadership potential, leadership potential sort of very broadly defined, you know, this can be somebody who is, you know, the president of a club of their high school, but it could also be somebody who has started a soup kitchen in their neighborhood, or it can also be somebody who has taken care of their four younger siblings while their parents work. And it could be, you know, somebody who's, you know, has a black belt in karate in high school, like all of these things are Um, signs of leadership, like these students are outstanding, they are going to go on to do great things. And we try to see if we can tell them more about AI, tell them about how AI can help solve some of the problems that they're passionate about. Generally, these students all have, you know, particular things that are on their mind, whether it's related to uh, their community or sort of world problems or somewhere in between. So things like 
you know, ranging from world hunger, climate change, clean water in their communities, cyberbullying, you know, all kinds of things that are affecting them directly in different ways. And we try to help them see that, first of all, there are AI-based solutions to these problems. And we try to get them to see that this kind of passion and their voices and their, you know, excitement, right, and, and, and passion for these solutions are actually much needed in the field. Like, we want to make sure all of these problems are solved with AI. And in order to do that, you know, we want people like them to come in and, and help us diversify the type of problems we're working on, the type of solutions we're exploring. And so we try to show them basically a path into AI if they choose to take it. If maybe a parent or a student is, is listening to this, where did they go to find out more about this? Can they participate? Yeah, absolutely. So it's AIforall.org. It's the URL. So you can go apply to, we have different summer programs in partnership with different universities. So we have, um, you know, Stanford AI for All, Princeton AI for All, Berkeley AI for All. I think we're right now at 16 universities and, and growing. And so these are summer programs. They're pretty small. You know, each one is sort of 20 to 40 students or so where, you know, you can apply, they have different focus on different things. So for example, the Princeton program is for AI technology and policy. So we talk about AI governance and how we, you know, both how we build AI systems, but also how we think about governing them about what does it take to make sure that this technology is safe out in the world. And so you can apply to all of these different programs, there's sort of guidelines and age ranges and so forth. And then there's a number of other initiatives. So for example, open learning, which is our free online content for people who want to just learn a little bit about sort of be introduced to this field without necessarily, you know, going, committing to, you know, a summer program of, you know, a multi-week deep dive into it, but who just want to get a sense of kind of what's out there, how can we think about AI in the context of different problems in the world. And so that's AI for all open learning. We are dropping new interviews every week, so subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI, robotics, and the people bringing them into the real world. So Olga, when trying to reach people from diverse background, I mean, paying to go on a summer camp at Princeton, how is that handled? So some just don't have tuition, and this is typically for the camps that are sort of day programs. So some of those are able to do this without tuition. They're completely free. And they also, we try to be very thoughtful about the fact that many students will be working over the summer. And so actually, even if the camp is free, you know, they still can't work. I mean, it's still a full-time program. And so they can't work during that time. So we try to sort of compensate for that by, first of all, providing food to so generate all of these programs, there's sort of three meals a day. And we try to be very thoughtful about like, we, it's not pizza, it's like, you know, nutritious meals that are substantial and that are good for you. Again, it's not pizza for three weeks straight. We also provide so from AI for all from the National Foundation, we've also recently, especially kind of last year, the COVID times, we started providing additional subsidies and sort of uh, stipends for students who attend these camps, even again, the free camps who kind of need additional resources, either towards they need a, to rent a laptop for this period, or they just, you know, are missing out on, on income that they would otherwise have and kind of compensating for that. And then all of the camps that have tuition. So for example, Stanford AI for all, Princeton AI for all, they, they have tuition. All of them are need blind admissions. 
And for example, at Princeton, we actually explicitly say if your you know, combined household income is less than a certain amount, like this camp will be free. So you can apply, it'll be need-blind admissions, but then afterwards, you know, we sort of say, okay, can you submit, you know, your sort of tax return from last year, or even just like write us a paragraph telling us about your financial situation. And we say, you know, if it's below a certain amount, like this camp will just be free, no questions asked. Like this includes, we, we will fly you out to the camp, like we will pick you up at the airport, like we'll just take care of everything. Wow. I got to imagine you got some great stories of students who went through the camp because you've been running it for a few years now. Can you maybe share a story or two of, of things some of the students have done? I mean, we've got amazing students. There's just such a range. I mean, you know, clean water in, in the community that I sort of mentioned as something a student cares about. I mean, this is from a student who attended Stanford AI for all a few years ago, and she actually went and deployed an app and some AI-based solutions to sort of try to solve the problem of like water contamination in her hometown in Salinas, California. We have another student that won the best paper award at the machine learning for healthcare workshop at NeurIPS at the top machine learning conference. She went on to do some research at the Stanford AI lab and like, you know, actually was the lead author on this paper that, you know, was accepted to this workshop and actually won the best paper award around AI system healthcare. You know, we've got a number of students who do an amazing job in the camps and go on to do their own kind of outreach work and kind of bring AI education to other students in their community who may not have access to this kind of program, who may not have, you know, gotten to these camps or who might be too young, who might be, you know, in middle school. And they've launched, you know, AI clubs, but also things like, you know, AI and art initiatives to sort of run workshops around teaching younger students about AI technology through art. I can keep going. There's just the, the students have been absolutely amazing. And they all come in with their unique perspectives and kind of unique viewpoints. And it's just working with them is kind of a breath of fresh air in many ways, because they just are passionate about different things. And then each one kind of brings their own unique story to the table and, you know, really wants to apply this technology for something that they are personally passionate about. It's amazing to hear you talk about this with also so much passion. I would strongly encourage any students hearing this to apply to AI for All. It seems like an amazing experience. Now, zooming out for a moment, that is one part. You're educating AI leaders of the future early on, which is amazing. But can you maybe also give a little bit of perspective on, is that all we need to do? Is, is there more we need to do to get to the best outcomes? What are your thoughts on the overall picture? One of the reasons why we started AI for All, I mean, besides summer camps, is the alumni community. So we're calling them change makers in AI, but this is essentially a lifelong community that, you know, we continue to provide support and opportunities to these students who, you know, attended the summer camp, you know, now a few years ago. But like, can we ensure that they can continue in this space? Can we continue creating, you know, community among them? Can we try to help them feel sort of supported and connected to other students who look like them or who can, you know, support, who can relate to their experiences and kind of create that peer community and also a mentor community. You know, going beyond AI for all students, I think there's a lot of conversations about diversity in the field and in particular around demographic diversity. And I think that that's great and that's very much needed. And there is less conversations around inclusion. So like you mentioned, right, there's a sense of like, oh, great, we got, you know, a woman in the lab, but then there is comparatively, you know, much less conversations around like, what does it mean to have people from different backgrounds? How do you, you know, as the manager, as the professor in your lab, or, you know, kind of as a leader of a group of people, how do you adjust your 
work style to actually, you know, create a community that is welcoming and inclusive of all voices. I think one of the things that I've actually frequently heard and have, you know, recently started speaking out against is sort of people who say, well, I treat all of my students the same, or I treat, you know, all of my employees the same. And the thing is, what that really means is you treat them the way you yourself would want to be treated, but that does not work for everybody. That is going to likely work for students or people who are similar to you. That is how they want to be treated. But as soon as sort of you start working with people who are more and more and more different from you, the way you want to be treated is actually completely not the way that that sort of works for them or not the way that makes them more successful. And so, you know, I, I do see there's, there is an increase in conversations around inclusion, but I think still we are in many ways too focused on the demographic diversity numbers and insufficiently focused on inclusion, on broader definitions of diversity And, you know, I hope that we kind of move more towards that in the coming years, while, you know, obviously, sort of the demographic diversity numbers are appalling, like we need to do things about that. And we need to continue on that front for sure. But I think without the inclusion conversation, what's going to happen is exactly what's happening now with the leaky pipeline, you know, we can bring diverse people in and then they they leave because of the way they're treated. So as a professor myself, of course, I'm curious if you have any kind of specific tips on things that maybe you've done or seen other people do that really help with inclusion. Yeah, you know, I, I wish I had, you know, great answers to this. But, you know, one of the things that, that I started doing that I find it helps me and I think it would be great, you know, I've asked my students, I, I don't know how to ask this. Maybe once I have students who have graduated, they can, they can sort of honestly tell me what they thought of this. But one of the things I do is I do a survey for every student in my lab kind of every semester. So they fill out a like a little Google form kind of telling me about their goals, about what they've, you know, feel like they've accomplished last semester, kind of do they feel like they've reached those goals as well as, you know, I specifically ask questions about inclusion. Are there things that kind of isn't working for them in the lab? I also have a, a separate, like anonymous, you know, this form obviously has their name because I'm, if I ask them about what are your goals or accomplishments for last semester, whether you put your name on it or not, like I, I will know who you are. But there's also, you know, an opportunity to provide this anonymously. And again, it, it's hard for me to say whether this reveals, you know, all issues, but I do find that I get very helpful feedback from that, just in terms of like random things I wouldn't have thought of in terms, you know, ranging from things like desk placement in the lab or sort of, you know, some students feel, you know, more exposed in particular places and like want a more private location to, you know, the way like lab meetings are run to whether they feel like their voices are heard, or maybe, you know, they would like to be called on more often, or like, sort of sort of a whole wide range of things. And I find that really helpful. And again, it, it's very hard for me to say whether that addresses everything, or rather, I'm 100% sure that it doesn't address everything. But at least doing this kind of like personal connection with every student sort of personal check in, I think, I think helps me get a little bit of a better sense of what would work well in the lab and sort of what's working and what isn't. As I'm internalizing this, I'm kind of internalizing this as you're in some sense taking it yet one step further. You're not saying, I'm going to try to address this group or that group or that group. I'm going to try to find out for every individual in their own unique way, what is Mm -hmm. it that is going to matter to them and hopefully then be able to resolve whatever might need to be resolved. 
Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And I also try to put my you know PhD students in various like leadership roles in the lab as also kind of a way in the spirit of more diverse teams bring better results, which has been shown time and time again. But also just in terms of like running the lab, if you put diverse people in charge of kind of different aspects of it, I think the end result ends up being more inclusive just because it's not just sort of my viewpoint and my opinion, but kind of a, a more distributed leadership system. I like that. Now, sometimes, I mean, I hear also the opposite, of course, is where underrepresented groups are asked to be taking charge on literally everything everywhere to check off the box that somebody diverse yeah. is helping out and in charge. And so do you have any advice maybe on how to decline some of those things? Well, I think my biggest advice is that if you're not a member of a minority group, you should be stepping up to do work for those groups. So for example, like just because you're not a minority, like volunteer to order food or like organize, you know, diverse in CS meetups. And that is very, very appreciated. And that's, you know, one way to not take away like leadership roles from people who are frequently not asked to be in leadership roles, but you can take away sort of things that really nobody wants to do. Like nobody wants to send out reminder emails about this meeting. Like nobody wants to order food for these meetings. But if you can do things like that, that makes quite a big difference. And then, you know, if you're a member of a minority group and you find, you know, you're consistently being asked to serve on different things, I don't know if I have a great piece of advice. I mean, I relate as a woman, although, you know, I think we've made much bigger strides in the gender issue than we have in race issues, for example, within within computer science. But I, I very much relate, like I've served on panels where I was invited because I was a woman. It was very clear that like nobody really cared much what I had to say. And, you know, but they were proud that there was a woman sitting on stage. Like like I've I've been in those roles. And and yes, I also hear about the being invited to serve on many more committees. My solution to this has been because of AI for all, like I care very much about AI for all, and, and I put you know a lot of time and a lot of effort into the work that we do there. And in some ways, that helps me mitigate some of my guilt for saying no to other things so frequently. I'll sort of say, you know, I am already doing a lot in terms of service to the community. This is what I'm doing. I, you know, send the link to AI for all and I say, you know, here's my role. Here's what I'm already doing. Like, no, thank you. Can't take on more. But at the end of the day, you know, it really comes down to you kind of have to yourself figure out where the boundaries are. And it's it's very unfortunate, but it, it is a much higher burden on people who are from groups that are less represented is that they do have the burden of kind of having to figure out where the boundaries are and what they can say no to and, and how to navigate that. Yeah, it's never easy to turn things down. It seems invitations tend to never be just invitations. They tend to come with expectations and it's, it's always a challenge yep. to turn them down. Having some templates, also having a no committee, have a few people and whenever an, an invitation comes in, you just forward it to them and say, should I do this and have them vote? And then you could you know, make a decision from there. One of the things I've, I've always been curious about as the ImageNet competition played such a big role in how AI and deep learning came of age, and you are one of the organizers of many editions of, of the competition. If you could say a bit more about the competition and what it was like from, from your perspective. And it's so interesting that you say, well, this team presented this kind of out of left field solution. It, it was very different from anybody else. Nobody else was submitting deep learning solutions for image recognition to the competition, and they did. And it feels so complex at the time. And 
yet today, just a few years later, that feels simple. That feels like the, the natural way of doing things. It's changed things very, very quickly. Yeah, for sure. It used to be, I mean, I remember we all sort of knew about deep learning. We all knew neural networks. I mean, we kind of knew it, it's a method, it's an algorithm that exists out there, but it just hadn't been applied on this scale. And certainly, I think, hadn't been applied with these kinds of groundbreaking results. Like, it was just so clear that this is an entirely new revolutionary approach to these problems. Yeah, now, of course, in retrospect, you know, now we say, oh, AlexNet, which was, which was the system that won the challenge, we're like, oh, that, that's a simple baseline, you know, we can run AlexNet, but really, there's all these other networks that we're using. And it's also, you know, part of the undergrad curriculum I spend, you know, in my undergrad computer vision course, I spend maybe a third of the course sort of teaching students about deep learning, because it's now a fundamental part of computer vision. How can you even teach an introductory computer vision course without deep learning? And so the ImageNet competition is something that's such an iconic aspect of deep learning progress and AI progress. And as researchers, we all know perfectly ImageNet competition, what it is. But for somebody who's never heard of the ImageNet competition, what, what is it? What goes on in that competition? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's essentially a way to measure progress on visual recognition. So visual recognition, what we are referring to there is generally we're trying to build a system that can look at an image or a video, but in this case, an image and understand what's in the image. So for example, you know, look at this frame and say, okay, this is, you know, a person sitting and there's also a chair or look at, you know, a different pictures, okay, there's a computer monitor and there's a, there's a keyboard. So kind of identify what are the visual concepts that are in the image. And so what we want to do is we want to measure how well one system performs in this task compared to another system. So in order to do that, what we do is we collect a set of images. So in the case of uh, the image I challenge, this is we're talking about 100,000 images. Some of the previous works have been you know, much smaller. You would collect maybe 10,000 images or so. You label all of the objects in there, sort of all of the concepts that you're hoping the model would recognize. And so you evaluate, you know, given two systems or given, you know, 10 systems or however many, you kind of are able to then assign a level of accuracy to each system, depending on how well it performs on this given collection of images, which is called a test set. Can you say a bit more about what it means to be a test set? Yeah, so a test set is basically a collection of images, a collection of data that is used to evaluate the performance of an, of an algorithm. The reason why you need a particular name for this is the test set is distinct from what's called the training set. When you're trying to compare the performance of different systems on a test set with known outputs. So the, the other factor, uh, the other part of this is that these systems are, we're typically talking about a test set in the context of a machine learning system. A machine learning system is essentially a system that learns patterns from data. The way you are developing the system is you are showing it essentially a collection of, in this case, images with known outputs. And you're saying, okay, okay, system, here you go. Here's a set of 1 million images. Some of these are images of cats. Some of these are images of dogs. Some of these are images of computer monitors. And so the job of the system is to extract patterns from this collection of data and then be able to, given a new unseen image replicate, sort of produce the right output there. For making comparison, you know, comparing system one to system two, one of the things that matters is not just comparing it on the same set of test images, but also making sure that these two systems have access to the same training data. 
so to the same collection of images that they are learning from. And so part of the image benchmark is both providing the training set that all of the systems are learning from, and then evaluating them on new unseen images, which are the test set. Back in 2012, so I wasn't yet an organizer, but I was sort of sitting in the audience watching the workshop. And kind of, I remember watching this moment when this team got up to speak about their winning entry. And I was like, I don't really know why this model works. It seems really complicated, but it's so different than anything that's been submitted or tried before this data. And it just works so much better. And I remember the whole audience kind of going quiet and sort of listening go, oh, that like something is happening. Like we're not really sure what it is yet, but some, something major is happening. And then over the next few years, just kind of watching this grow from, you know, a small academic competition, you know, we get some small number of entries, you know, not nearly as, as big of a deal to suddenly kind of ballooning in terms of, you know, exploding in terms of number of submissions, in terms of media attention, in terms of sort of teams, academic, industrial, kind of all focused on this one benchmark. And it was really kind of a, um, you know, a magical or a strange moment in many ways, just kind of witnessing that. So as an organizer of the competition, I got to imagine you had access to the test set and you could see results before anybody else. What what was that like? Because you would see all these submissions come in and then it must be fascinating to know weeks or maybe months before everybody else, how well the latest vision systems are doing on these test sets. So honestly, what I mostly remember is sort of stressful things that were happening where, you know, our server would suddenly go down when, you know, near the deadline or some team would sort of email us with, you know, they submitted the wrong file, can they resubmit? And I feel like so much of my brain power was going towards mitigating those kinds of things that, you know, I I think at some point we would like see the new numbers would be like, oh, cool, new number. All right, next crisis. So I think just managing this whole um, endeavor, there there were so many details to keep track of that. I mean, we knew the numbers usually a week or two before the workshop when they would be announced. And that was exciting. But I think there was, again, there was so much work to do during those two weeks that that's mostly what we focused on didn't really have time to enjoy it. You just had to get it done. Yeah, exactly. Now, as you described, these vision systems are trained on a lot of data. In fact, some people say data is the new oil, was I think people said already many years ago, right? But that data, a lot of it, as I understand it, gets crowdsourced to be able to build the data set for image. Can you say a bit more about that process? Yeah, absolutely. So as I already mentioned, right, so the data, the images need to have them kind of target labels on them. So for this challenge, right, the, the images were labeled with the objects in the, in the image. There's no automatic way of doing this. If there was, we would need to have the challenge. In order to actually get the labels, you need to have people sit down and, you know, actually look at every image and say, okay, here's what is in the image. Maybe we can automatically provide a guess for what is there. So we can say, okay, here's an image. We think this, this probably has a computer monitor. Is that true? Yes or no? So crowdsourcing actually enabled us to do this data collection at the scale of many millions of images, because as you can imagine, you have millions of images, it takes a person about two seconds or so to make a determination for whether a particular label, a particular object is in the image. Now you need to do this for, you need to have many people look at each image to make sure your labels are accurate. 
And so, you know, there was a back of the envelope calculation that we did at some point, which said, you know, if we just have grad students or undergrads doing this, this would take something like 19 years of just like 24-7 labeling. And so being able to engage crowd workers and sort of parallelize this, engage a lot of people in the annotation process actually enabled us uh, to do this at scale. Well, thanks so much for joining all guys. Fantastic conversation. Really fun. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was so fun. This was really good. I've done podcasts before. This was by far my favorite. I'm not, I mean, I don't know if it was like the questions that were just awesome or like the way you asked them or something. I don't know. I had a great time. We are interviewing people for the podcast every week. So to make sure you can listen to every new episode, please subscribe to the Robot Brain podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Thank you.